I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel. We find ourselves in chapter 15 this morning. Matthew chapter 15. We have the joy to once again humble ourselves before the preaching of the Word of God. And frankly, this is a method of communication that is considered by most people these days obsolete. I find it interesting that the new method of communication for churches is to have very short, kind of humorous sermons. And of course, you must use a PowerPoint and you need, and many churches, what they will do is have a five-minute uh, The pastor will speak for maybe five minutes and then they'll have kind of a commercial break cutaway and have something else going on and then come back and he'll speak for a few more minutes and they'll they'll have another cutaway because they believe that uh, people are programmed to listen this way because that's how we watch TV and um, people can't listen to biblical content content for more than a few minutes is their thought and certainly nobody could possibly endure 45 to 50 minutes of a biblical exposition. And I feel that they sell people far too short. I don't believe that's true at all. That is not the biblical method. And for those who truly love the Lord and long to hear his word, those who desire to worship him in spirit and in truth, you're not going to consider it enduring a Bible exposition. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And certainly in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, we're reminded that God uses pastor teachers as his spokesmen for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's doctrinal unity. And he goes on to say that you are then learning of the knowledge of the Son of God to become a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. So, once again, we gather together in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, longing to learn more of the glories of our salvation and the majesty and the excellency of Christ. And today we find ourselves in an obscure passage, but I might say that even though it is a small cavern, if you will, among the magnificent mountain of holy writ, Yet within this this little cave, we will mine some precious jewels of divine truth for today. We are going to witness some of the marvelous aspects of the doctrine of salvation, not to mention the power of Christ. Now, before we look at the text, may I give you just a, a brief overview of this wonderful doctrine of salvation? And it, it's going to certainly not at all be exhaustive, but. It's interesting that there is a preparation for salvation, there is a plan for salvation, and there is a product of salvation. 
And in God's preparation, when we study it biblically, we know that that all have sinned and therefore all men are in need of salvation. And so therefore, God has prepared for this work of salvation and his preparation is threefold. It is through grace, election and calling. That's what we see biblically. That's what God does to prepare those whom he has chosen. And but there's a plan also. Uh, The necessary response to that preparation in his plan, a response that is demanded, is threefold as well. It's faith, repentance and conversion. And those things happen simultaneously, even though there's unique aspects to them, theologically speaking. And in the historical narrative that we have before us today, we see a pagan woman unwittingly responding to divine grace, election and calling. And she has a conscious and determined response, the one that is demanded by God, that of faith, repentance and conversion. And we're going to see that. And certainly the product of all of this, the product of salvation is also threefold. And it's simply union with Christ, justification and regeneration. And all of these glorious truths converge together or intersect at in this particular story that we have before us. So let's read it and then we will begin to unpack it here this morning, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. The context, the context is simply this. Jesus is leaving the region of Galilee where he has been ministering and he goes to the northwest and up around the area, the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is Gentile country. Today, it would be considered southern Lebanon, ancient Phoenicia, where the sailors lived. It's a beautiful area on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this land was rampant with paganism. They were known for their idolatry, their idol worship. And they and in that worship, uh, they had many forms of immorality, gross debauchery that took place. And these were the, the ancient Canaanite people, a very vile people. They were so vile, so wicked that when God's people came into the land, he required them to utterly destroy all of them. That's how wicked they were. And so this woman was a descendant of that group. Now, 
before we look at it very closely, we want to ask the question, why did Jesus go there? I mean, he was in Galilee and we've been studying this and we see that there were there, there were thousands of people following after him. And now he leaves all of them. That doesn't seem to make sense. But if I can digress for a moment here to remind you of something, as we've studied before, friends, never forget that true ministry will always seem counterintuitive. It will never make sense from the world's perspective. The divine strategy for ministry makes no sense whatsoever from a human perspective. It's counterintuitive to human thought, certainly at odds with the modern church growth movement. Think with me for a moment. Think how counterintuitive this is. God comes up with a plan to win people to himself. And so what does he do? Well, he sends God to earth as a baby. And this baby is born in utter obscurity. And then he says, I I want him to be a part of the most hated group of people on the planet. I want him to be be a part of a group that lives in self-righteous apostasy. And I want my son, the son of God, to live in obscurity. And I want to send him in a period of history when there's no mass media so nobody can see what he's really up to. And then beyond that, I want him to live with virtually no earthly possessions. He will have no ministry headquarters, no website, no retreat center, not even a home. And I'm going to have him minister for three years And I want him to constantly tell people things they don't want to hear. And most of the people will therefore be offended. I want him to wander around in about a 60 mile circle through these three years. And I want him to attack the influential religious elite. Beyond that, I want him to expose their hypocrisy. I don't want him to ever gain their support. And I want him to spend most of his time with the poor, the uneducated, the outcasts, and the social misfits. Beyond that, I don't want him to ever surround himself with celebrities that could open doors for him. But instead, I'm going to have him choose uneducated and untrained, and in some cases, unwanted social misfits as his representatives. He will preach a message that is so utterly offensive and ridiculous that Even his own countrymen will cry out for his blood and ultimately he will die an ignominious and excruciating death on a Roman cross condemned for crimes that he never even committed. Now, folks, that makes no sense from a human perspective. And certainly if any kind of a kingdom ever rises out of such a plan, God gets all the glory, right? So. This is what is going on again here with Jesus. He leaves the clamoring crowds and certainly the Jews were trying to make him king. And that would be perhaps another reason why he's moving away from this area. And yet he knew how close they were to truth, how hard hearted they were. Herod was also threatening. He had just killed John the Baptist and no doubt Jesus wanted to. Move away from that threat, even though he was certainly not afraid of Herod. 
And also the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to kill him. But folks, the main reason why he left the region of Galilee is to rest and to invest in his disciples. Verse 21 says that Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, forgive me, but I must have one more early digression in what I'm wanting to share with you from the text. You want to remember that all of the disciples now and the Lord as well are tired. They've been dealing with the multitudes. And as if you've been with me in the study, you realize that. But Jesus also understands that concentration produces multiplication. And again, this is counterintuitive. This doesn't seem to make sense. If you want to go wide, you must first go deep with a few. By the way, this is why we have the shepherds in training program here. By the way, men, regardless of what you think you know about theology, I assure you, if you will come, you will learn things that you never even knew were in the scripture. And so if you have the time, come. But folks, genuine Christ honoring breadth in ministry is a product of depth of discipleship. And the Lord knew that it's not the product of some marketing strategy or some superficial crowd enticement and manipulation. I find it interesting that so many churches these days are hiring church uh, or well, yeah, they're called church marketing agencies. They're marketing agencies for businesses, but they many of them now are specializing in helping churches. And this is very popular in the seeker movement. They have all kinds of marketing gimmicks to attract a crowd. And if you read these gimmicks and I've read most of them that that have come out, you'll see that they're as shallow as water on a plate. And these types of so-called churches, and I would not call them a church, but many people do. They never result in any lasting impact for Christ because they're not going deep with the few. They're going shallow with many. And it's easy to attract a, a crowd, but it's quite another thing to build a church, the pillar and the support of the truth. You cannot build a church, dear friends, with entrepreneurs at the helm. God is called and he has gifted pastor teachers to preach the word, to pour their lives into those who are under their charge. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the Apostle Paul told a young pastor by the name of Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One of the most popular movements today is uh, the purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven life. I, I continue just this week. I had three different people asking me about this, uh, uh, not even a part of our church. And it, it continues to be something that is just sweeping the nation. And it's interesting that one of the things they have is called a 40 days of purpose. And they send you the brochure and you sign up and basically you study what I would call the superficial wisdom of, of a man in order to uh, uh, attract people. And what you do is you attract your friends and neighbors to come and to study a best-selling book. You don't have them come to study the Bible because that would be offensive. However, the Bible is the best-selling book. I hope you realize. But it's interesting 
When you think of that mentality versus what Jesus would do, think if they were to send out a brochure or if somebody were would do that and say, we're going to have a 40 days of an in-depth discipleship program where, Pastor, you are going to invest yourself in 12 key men for 40 days. Well, of course, that is counterintuitive to the world's way of thinking. But I would submit to you, beloved, that that is how God did it. And look at the effect that it has had. You know, if you look at those who have had the greatest impact for the kingdom of God, all down through the years of redemptive history, you'll see that they were always men that went deep. They didn't concentrate on going wide. They concentrated on going deep. And as pastors and as all servants of God, we must be willing to to serve even in obscurity and to pour our lives into a few and help people establish roots in their theology that will grow deep into the soil of divine wisdom to be able to withstand the storms of apostasy so that people can be perpetually nourished by the life giving truths of Scripture and, and to abide in the in the vine of the triune God. And as a result, the kingdom will continue to grow slowly, but surely. And God will get all the glory. Now, back to the text. Jesus withdraws. He withdraws from the area of Galilee as if he was shaking the dust off of his feet because of their hard heartedness. He's withdrawing the light of truth from their willful darkness And he's going to invest himself now more into his disciples and get some wet rest. In fact, in Mark 7, 24, it says that he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape their notice. So he comes to this Gentile region now and a Canaanite woman seeks him out. And here's where the story really begins. Her daughter is cruelly demon possessed which was common among pagans who unwittingly worshipped demons. By the way, all false religion is demonic at its source. And Jesus and the apostles dealt much with this. People that, that were that we, we would consider mad because of demonic influence. They, they would be uncontrollable. They would be dangerous, sometimes diseased. And these people worshipped in that region the fertility cult of Astarte, um, which was a... A, um, a, a pagan fertility goddess. And in that particular worship, uh, there were ev- every imaginable form of wickedness. Many times the young children would be dedicated to various forms of, of immoral and vile service. And by the way, don't think that um, this kind of demonization doesn't occur today. It does occur today. And it occurs certainly in the darkest of jungles, but it also occurs right here in the United States. All you have to do is look at some of our rock concerts. You go down to the mall, you'll see uh, undeniable um, evidence of of satanic influence on our young teens. Uh, Many of them you'll notice dress in what they call gothic or Wicca. And you'll see all of this black hair and body piercing and, 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 and tattoos and black clothing and and black makeup, black fingernail polish, all of this type of thing. And you get around these type of people, as I have with their parents and sometimes even with the kids, and you'll find that every waking moment of these of these of these desperate people blind in their sins, every waking moment will be filled with hate and violence and rebellion and lust. They're utterly self-absorbed. 
People that are self-centered, given over to a depraved mind, as Romans 1 would say, being filled, as verse 29 says in Romans 1, with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And certainly many of these people that we see even in our own culture are people who have been profoundly impacted by Satan and his minions, and many of them are undoubtedly possessed. Now, we don't know the specifics of this little girl uh, in, uh, in, in, in the area of, um, of Phoenicia, Uh, where Jesus is at, but obviously the mother is distraught. And here we begin to enter into uh, the mine, as I promised you, of divine revelation and find some priceless jewels of salvation. Here we have an idolatrous, uh, what what they would call a a, a Syrophoenician woman. Obviously now she's disillusioned with the non-existent gods of her idolatry, and she's now responding to divine grace, election and calling, as we mentioned, with a conscious and determined response that God demands that of faith, repentance and conversion. Now, because of this, we witness here in this text the very essence of saving faith manifested through three noticeable attitudes and actions. First of all, we're going to see That she begged for mercy. Folks, this is the beginning of true saving faith. Notice in verse 22. She began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. Now, not only was she crying out because of her daughter's condition, but also her own spiritual condition. She's begging the Lord for mercy, which means to have pity. And the grammar in the text indicates that that her call was for a specific action, obviously for her own spiritual condition and her daughter's condition. Now, certainly mercy is rooted in the character of God. We see it all through his dealings with the covenant people who consistently violated his law. You will remember when God spoke spoke to to Moses on Sinai in Exodus 34. Beginning in verse six, he says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. You see, this woman knew she deserved nothing, but she also knew that she had no hope. No hope whatsoever apart from his mercy. She's desperate for help. Regardless of the cost. So she comes like those who came that we read about in First Thessalonians 1 9, who had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Dear friends, this is the stuff of genuine saving faith. When someone begs or pleads for mercy and they find it in Christ and the good news of the gospel is that's where mercy and grace can be found. When one sees the hopelessness of his or her condition, the hopelessness of their soul and recognize their utter inability to save themselves, they will cry out in anguish of soul. Oh, God, have mercy upon me. 
like blind Bartimaeus. Remember him in Mark 10 that cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when we read of the tax gatherer in Luke 18, remember how he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes when the Lord came. And instead, he, he beat upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, too often I fear gospel invitations are so diluted with pleasantries that people totally miss the point that they are sinners condemned by God and in desperate need for divine mercy. Again, this week, I've, I, I, was, I found myself being bombarded with some of these questions. Now, go back to one of the most common, I, I fear, common um, dangerous fads, if I can put it that way, that is out today, that of the purpose-driven life. I call it kind of cotton candy churchianity, where God is painted with a with a with a cosmic smiley face. You know, he he, he, he you you use these methods to herd masses of, of self-indulgent seekers, as they're called, through what I would call the wide gate of salvation and down the broad way that leads to destruction. And of course, the Lord reminds us in Matthew seven thirteen that many are those who enter by it. But this is a great example of a deluded, non-offensive gospel that we see in this purpose-driven life movement. In this, you'll, you'll see that there is an invitation given to people. And here's how it goes. He invites people to, quote, quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. And here's the prayer. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. There it is. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. Folks believe in him for what? I mean, we can read in the Bible in James 2.19 that even the demons believe God is one and they shudder. I don't see any shuddering here. I don't see any trembling. I don't see any sense of, Lord, I believe that your diagnosis, your judgment of my condition is that I am guilty. And I believe that you are the only one that can save me. You don't see that. I believe in you and I receive you. Well, you don't hear that with the woman, do you? The Canaanite woman. She's not coming up to him and saying, Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. No, she's saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. What a radical difference. She's pleading for mercy. And in this particular um, purpose-driven life movement, the pastor goes on and says, and I quote, if you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations, he tells the reader, welcome to the family of God. You are now ready to discover and start living God's purpose for your life. Nothing about congratulations, your sins are forgiven. Congratulations, now you can start walking in the power of the Spirit as you deny yourself and take up a cross daily and follow Him, even if it takes you to your death. None of that. And in another invitation, in a video that they send out, uh, thousands of uh, small groups will gather together for the, uh, a study, and they're doing this all across the country. It's a teaching video for the 40 Days of Purpose. And in that teaching video, one is led in a slightly longer prayer. 
and they hear the pastor speak these words. And I quote, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you aren't sure of this, I'd like the privilege of leading you in a prayer to settle the issue. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer and you can follow it silently in your mind. Now, here's the prayer. Quote, dear God, I want to know your purpose for my life. I don't want to waste the rest of my life on the wrong things. Today, I want to take the first step in preparing for eternity by getting to know you, Jesus Christ. I I, I don't understand it all, but as much as I know how, I want to open my life to you. I ask you to come into my life and make yourself real to me. Use this series to help me know what you made me for. Thank you. Amen. And he goes on to say, and I quote, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, I congratulate you. You've just become a part of the family of God. You know, that sounds like something a marketing firm would write. But folks, that's not what a preacher of the gospel would write. You know, you look at this, and beloved, I must ask you, where is a cry for mercy in this? Where is there an understanding of the holiness of God and how that we have violated that law? There, there, there's nothing in this that would expose uh, our utter sinfulness and our need to be reconciled to God. There's no mention uh, of repentance, of confession, of the cross, of the resurrection. Folks, that's the heart of the gospel. Beloved, genuine saving faith begins in a heart that begs for mercy, that understands the need for undeserved pardon, for forgiveness of sins. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that has the idea of, of one that recognizes that they are spiritually destitute. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. The idea of mourning over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Beloved, God is merciful. But please hear this. God will only save those who recognize they need saving. This is the response God demands from us, that we place our faith in him alone for undeserved mercy and that we repent of our sins and we walk and we go in a different direction. This is the prayer of the penitent. This was the essence of what the Canaanite woman said. She was desperate for mercy. Her prayer to him was humble. It was full of faith. It was fervent. She's relying on the mercy of God and she perseveres. And so not only do we see her pleading for mercy, but friends, secondly, we see that her faith was in. Now catch this. The Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, this might seem painfully obvious to you, but, you know, it's not to many people. Notice how she addresses him. Oh, Lord, son of David. See, she acknowledged him as Lord, which means the, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. She understood that. That's who she, who she, why she calls him that. And that he's the son of David. She, she understood that, 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 she, that he was the Jewish Messiah. Obviously, she had heard of him. Everyone in the region had heard of him. And she approaches him now with humble reverence. And so, folks... Her faith was specifically directed at him. Now, you say, Pastor, why do you make such a fuss about this? Well, I'll tell you why. 
We hear much today about people of faith, right? People of faith. But friends, faith in what? And in whom? The answer for many people is, well, faith in God, whoever he or she is, whoever you want him or her to be, whatever name you wish to give him or her. And other people are perhaps a little closer to the truth, but still not there. They believe that our faith needs to be in Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, he's more of, as I say, the cosmic smiley face Jesus that just winks at sin and helps our kids hit more home runs and helps us be able to drive Mercedes. Or he is the Jesus that loves everybody and takes everybody to heaven. The benevolent butler Jesus that jumps every time we snap our fingers to fulfill our needs for health and wealth or provide some kind of a personal miracle. Other people would say, well, I have faith in Allah or Buddha or the human spirit or the great cosmic wonder or like some of the native Indian people that I've worked with, the great spirit. Or other people would say faith in the man upstairs or the unseen force that overcomes evil, blah, blah, blah. Dear friends. Unless the object of your faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith is empty. It is dead. Specifically, saving faith. And I really want you to hear this. Saving faith is the knowledge of the assent to and the unreserved reliance upon the finished redemptive work of Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. Many people have a counterfeit faith. They have just a mental, intellectual acknowledgement of the reality of Jesus. As I mentioned before, even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder, as James 2.19 says. Others have an enthusiastic, emotional involvement in Jesus. But this is not saving faith. Remember the parable of the, of the seed and the sower in Matthew 13 that we studied? How that the seed of the gospel falls upon the rocky soil and some people hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. Yet the text says he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And then when the storms of life come along, it withers and dies. But friends, saving faith begins with a desperate cry for mercy. And it includes genuine repentance, entrusting oneself to Jesus, the Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. This lady, I believe, understood the truth of Acts 4.12, where we read that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I want to hasten to add something that's an important note. It is not the act of faith that saves a man. Let me say that again. It is not the act of faith that saves a man. Even if that faith is focused on Christ. But rather, it is the object of faith that saves. Namely, God the Father who has sent His Son and ministered the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see... It is God who responds to the act of faith and justifies the believer. Now, 
This dear Canaanite lady had saving faith. In fact, Jesus later said her faith was great. A term that is used, the, the term faith used in, in other contexts with regards to saving faith. But, you know, her faith was great not because it was more heartfelt, but because of the obstacles it had to overcome. Folks, you must understand that in that culture, to turn from your idols meant that many times you would lose your job. Because they had all kinds of trade guilds where part of their work, kind of like joining the union, you had to you had to worship these various deities. And many times they would they, they would lose their friends and, and, and lose their, their families and suffer persecution because these people would say, you've got to be kidding me. You, you're going to worship that 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 Jewish Messiah. You're going to turn your back on our gods. You, you, you're calling our gods false. This woman was willing to do that. And by the way, proof that her faith was great is found in the fact that she persevered. So not only do we see in the essence of saving faith here, one that begs for mercy and places her faith directly and exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, we see that true saving faith seeks the Lord in humble persistence. Again, verse 23, notice Jesus did not answer her a word. And the disciples are saying, Lord, send her away. She's shouting after us. In other words, she, she's a nuisance here. She's drawing a crowd. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to keep things under wrap here so we can have a, a few days off. And they thought that the Lord was trying to ignore her. And, and they were confused. They didn't understand that Jesus had a plan. He knew, you see, that genuine faith will be persistent faith. So he deliberately places obstacles in her path that only a determined and sincere faith would overcome. So the Lord's silence now worked in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit's work of compelling. You see, friends, regeneration is at work here. There is an irresistible calling that fuels her holy persistence. And it's obvious that his silence did not extinguish her zeal, but, but, but rather it inflamed it. You see, the Lord Jesus did not speak to her with his lips, but through the power of his spirit, as the Holy Spirit made her steadfast in her pursuit of Christ, her Redeemer. How often has Christ spoken to me or to you, yet not through an audible voice? but with some overwhelming truth from the Word of God and, 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 and causes it to resonate within our soul and moves us to conviction. But notice what happens in the midst of his seeming rejection in verse 24. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, obviously the woman overheard this, and I'm sure Jesus intended for that to happen. Now, what's going on here? You say, boy, that, 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 this really sounds rude. It sounds like, you know... The Lord is going to break his rule here that if anyone comes to me, I'm not going to cast any of them out except this woman. Well, obviously, that's not the case. So what's going on? Well, Jesus was confirming to his disciples a very important truth that the kingdom was to be first offered to the covenant people, to the house of Israel. And he's saying, even though they have rejected me thus far, I still have more to do with them. Their opportunity is not passed. 
Now, we could see this in other passages of Scripture. Indeed, there was what Paul called in Ephesians 2.14, a middle wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And certainly this alluded to a wall that they had in the temple that partitioned off the court of Gentiles from the areas that would only be accessible to the Jews. But he was speaking symbolically as well of, of the social, religious and spiritual separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this wall was ultimately torn down, you will recall, at the death of Christ. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Verse 15 goes on to say, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So as a result, there's no longer Jew and Gentile, but now one Christian. Isn't that wonderful? And we're a part of that. So while Jesus' words to the disciples helped them understand his commitment to continue to plant the seed of the kingdom to the Jew first, it was, a, it was also, I believe, a very carefully placed barrier for the woman. Yet another obstacle that she would have to overcome. But again, remember that genuine saving faith cannot be blocked when the Spirit of God begins to call one to Himself, dear friends, there's no need for manipulative altar calls for a pastor to somehow say, Holy Spirit, I'm not getting anybody to come, so I'm going to take over here and I'm going to tell a few more tear-jerking stories and let's play 37 more verses of Just As I Am and maybe we'll get somebody to come down here. Folks, let me tell you, when the Spirit of God begins to work in the heart of a person, there is absolutely nothing that can thwart their coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. If you're under conviction, and I've seen that in this place, if you're under conviction and it's time for you to repent of your sins and you know it, an Abram's tank could come flying through this wall right here and it wouldn't stop you. So now with agonizing intensity, she bows down before Jesus, and she says in verse 25, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's saying, my goodness, the Lord's being hard on her. Oh, not really, because what's happening here is these obstacles are not doing nothing more than strengthening her zeal to come to him. And he knows this. You see, she understood well the Lord's figure of speech here. The, the word children referred to the Jews. She had heard that before. And dogs was a reference to Gentiles. No doubt she had been called that by the Jews. But friends, again, to keep this in mind, genuine saving faith takes no offense at the truth. And she knew that her sin made her even less deserving of mercy than even the Jews. Because at least the Jews were God's covenant people. They, they, they were... Historically, recipients of special blessings from God. And by the way, these blessings for the Jews from God were legendary, even among the pagans. And now this woman stood before the long awaited Jewish Messiah, and she's readily admitting her unworthiness to receive any blessing 
So she says, yes, uh, in essence, she's saying, yes, I know that I'm a dog. Spiritually, I know I have nothing to offer. I, I have no heritage. I have no inherent goodness. I have no merit whatsoever. All I can do is beg you for mercy. Verse 27, she's saying, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. In other words, even the crumbs of your blessing will be enough for me and for my daughter. Friends, what a a precious truth. You see, nothing could dissuade her. She knew that there was salvation in no other. There there was no other help for her daughter, no other help for her spiritual condition. And again, God's effectual call will ultimately be heard. His grace cannot be thwarted by by those whom he has determined to save. I don't know how else to say it any clearer. Jesus reminds us in John 6 and verse 40, no one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The word draws means to irresistibly compel. To cause something to move by an irresistible force. So, dear friends, think of this. Like the narrowing of a canyon on a stream of water, all of the obstacles to her faith begin to constrict upon her until it it, it brings it to full strength. And now, like a torrent, it, it bursts upon the Savior's redeeming grace. She was entering precisely Entering the kingdom precisely the way Jesus described in Matthew seven thirteen. Remember there <coughs> when he says, enter through the narrow gate. The word narrow, the original language is the word stenos. And it means restrictive. It means compressed. Enter through the compressed gate. By the way, it comes from a root word that means to groan. She was coming through a gate in a strenuous way. She was groaning as she came through it. You see, friends, this is so different, and I hope you see this. This is not the wide gate of easy believism. This is not the walk an aisle, get dunked in water, get sprinkled with some water, uh, sign a card, repeat a prayer. It's not that kind of gate. This is not the wide gate where one enters with a cavalier attitude. Where one says, boy, you know, hey, I'd really like to understand what my purpose in life is. Where do I sign up for this deal? That's not what this is all about. There's no attitude of self-indulgence here. No attitude of self-sufficiency. No attitude of self-righteousness. Friends, please hear this. This is the gate of self-denial. This is the gate that that rejects self-righteousness. This is the gate that discards self-will, that jettisons selfish ambitions. It says, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I desperately cry out for mercy that I don't deserve. You see, you don't enter this gate with ease. You don't enter this gate with the baggage of self-righteousness. You don't enter it holding the hands of your family members or by joining some denomination. Friends, you squeeze through this gate alone. That's the idea in Scripture. So the point is, biblically, when one comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, there will be intense pressure resulting from a conscious choice. There will be a determined, purposeful decision requiring strenuous effort. 
In fact, in Luke 13, Jesus was asked, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? To which he answered, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The word strive is a Greek word agonizomai. And you can tell the English word we get from that. And it was a word used to describe one who engages in an athletic contest that requires great intensity, exhausting effort. That's what it means when you come into the kingdom. You don't just waltz in there. Luke 16, 16 speaks of how the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And the idea there is, is that of, of vigorously, forcefully pressing into the kingdom. And what do you mean by that? Simply this. We're desperately crying out for undeserved mercy. It's the narrow gate of faith and repentance and conversion, all of which simultaneously occur when one is born again. This is the gate, dear friends, where a man is overwhelmed with the wretchedness of his sin. He realizes that he's violated the law of God and he agrees with God's holy and just verdict upon his soul, that of guilty. I think of our Russian brothers and sisters in Christ. It is said that when they come to a saving knowledge of Christ, they are called repenters. Isn't that great? Repenters, because many of them will come to the front of an auditorium and take the mic and they will publicly confess their sins and repent of their sins. What an incredible thing. How different it is in our culture because of this easy Belizevism, this wide gate theology that has gained such momentum. I had the joy from two different people this week. It was such an encouragement to me. I think the Lord knew that because of the sickness that I've been struggling with. The Lord always knows when we need a little encouragement. A friend called, a friend that I had been working with. I've been working with him and, and his teenage child. This child had professed Christ, but had been diagnosed with, once again, some phony psychological disorder. And to make a very, very long story short, he called and, and said... Dr. Harrell, I want to tell you, I, I, I just want to tell you what God has done. I said, well, I'm dying to hear. He said, well, you got some good news this time, because so often it's been a lot of tears, a lot of agony. And he said, um, I'm going to say, I'm paraphrasing this. My child repented of, we'll say, her sins. She repented of her sins and she understands now the cost of discipleship. And he began to talk about the radical transformation that was occurring in the life of his child. And by the way, this was a, a child who had formally professed Christ. But like so many people, she professed Christ, but did not possess Christ. Another mother called Nancy and me this week, a friend Again, these are people outside the church and told us how that her child that she'd been praying for for 30 years, over 30 years, had finally confessed her sins and repented using the same terms. And in joy, we rejoiced with her 
I mean, as the tears just flowed from her eyes, rejoicing over how this particular child had seen the mercy and the grace that can only be found in Christ Jesus. Well, back to the narrative here, since Jesus has promised that indeed the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out in John six thirty seven, He responds to the woman here in verse 28. Oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Oh, friends, what a marvelous example this was for the disciples. What a marvelous lesson. And for all of us, God responds to persistent faith. May I ask you, what are you trusting God for? Jeremiah 29, verse 13, we read, And you will seek me, God says, and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And you will recall as well, in Matthew 7 and verse 7, Jesus asked, or Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And that's precisely what this Syrophoenician woman did. Friends, I challenge you this morning. Have you come before the Lord Jesus Christ and begged Him for undeserved mercy? If you haven't, you must before it is too late. Have you placed your faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not some ethereal cosmic force, but in the son of the living God that paid the penalty for your sins. And are you continually seeking him in humble persistence in a faith that will not give up? even for those of us who know Christ, to trust Him for that lost loved one, to trust Him for spiritual growth in our own life, to trust Him to better understand the Word of God and apply it so that we can better love our wives, better love our husbands, and better teach our children. In closing, I'm reminded of a hymn. And and all I could remember when I was thinking of this was the first phrase, and I don't believe it's even in our hymn book, but I found it. I remembered the phrase, a debtor to mercy alone. By the way, that's what great hymns are supposed to do. They're supposed to be there. That's why we sing them. You know, that's why we we love them so, because they are edifying, because they remind us of great doctrinal truth. And and as I came to the end of my study and the, the precious time I had with the Lord, And just trying to understand this text so I could stand before you and say, here's what the Lord would have you hear. This this came to my mind and I was able to find it. And and it was written by Augustus Toplady, who lived between 1740 and 1778. And it's an old early American melody. And I'll just give you the first verse. But it summarizes so well the text this morning. Here's how it goes. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view.
Isn't that precious? What a wonderful, redeeming, merciful God we serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it's with great joy that we come to the close of this time in the Word with You, praising You for Your mercy and Your grace. Lord, I pray if there be one within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of the Savior that we love, I pray that they will recognize that the sword of divine justice looms over their head and that the only place to run for mercy and grace is at the foot of the cross where they will find it rich and free. Lord, I pray that you will cause them to come to a saving knowledge of you, that they will confess you as Lord and Savior and repent of their sins. And Lord, may we all, all of us who know you as Lord and Savior, abide with you with persistent faith for all of the things that we need to bring glory to you in our lives. For it's in the precious and merciful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.